like always, the passage uh, for our sermon is in the bulletin. But uh, if, I want to encourage you to open the Pew Bible to Acts 19. It's on page 928. If you've been here in the last few months, Mark's been preaching through Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter. Today we're going to look at a riot that took place in the city of Ephesus uh, as Paul was finishing laying the foundation for the church there. We're going to be in the book of Acts, and it's possibly my favorite book next to Genesis, basically because I'm a story guy. I really like stories, no matter the medium. Uh, I want to set this up for you before we read the passage. First, why was this book written, this book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles? There was a physician named Luke. If you don't know, he was a companion of Paul. And he wrote the book of Acts as the second of two volumes addressed uh, to someone he knew, a prominent friend named Theophilus. His first account was the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus. And in that book, he tells his friend why he's writing. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he wants Theophilus to be certain about the things he's been taught about Jesus and about Christianity. So he writes an actual historical account of Christ. And he then wrote Acts as a historical record of the things Christ has accomplished through his church. So it's a good reminder. Let's not put the stories that we read in scripture in some cloudy place in our minds where we're not really sure if they're a spiritual metaphor. Did they really happen? It's not the author's intent. They really happen. They're in history. Our faith is grounded in history. Uh, So the book of Acts summed up. I'm going to try to sum it up real quick. Jesus rises from the dead. He leaves his followers with a mission to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is going to spread out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. At this point in the book, chapter 19, We are in that end of the earth section. The gospel is spreading. The focus here is on Paul's missionary journeys. We're joining Paul. He's been in Ephesus for two years already. He's been persuading people in a public place, and he's been reasoning with them to believe in Jesus. If you look in verse 10 of chapter 19, right here, it says, So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's a really good time for the gospel. God's doing really amazing things through Paul. If you read, verse 11 describes abundant miracles God's doing. Even handkerchiefs that had touched Paul were healing people. So God is authenticating Paul's message through these miracles. Really extraordinary happenings. And this book of Acts is about God's spirit moving the gospel forward. So the next section starts a theme that's going to continue into our passage. People are coming to Christ. They're ridding themselves of dark magic practices. Yes, that was a thing. They were really doing magic, and they're burning these really expensive spell books. So the gospel is radically changing their lifestyles. It's freeing them from the idols they were holding to. Verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And now we come to our passage, where the gospel is actually going to incite a riot in Ephesus. So please read with me, starting in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, 
saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray and ask God to illuminate his word for us this morning. Father, we come to you, we ask that you would speak through your word to our hearts, that you would let us see what you have for us to learn and how we are to be changed by your word. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Say goodbye to Facebook. Maybe that really seems like a bold claim, but there are several articles online that are predicting that Facebook's going to go the way of Yahoo. Yahoo's still around, still functions, it's still worth something, but it's going to fade into cultural irrelevance. Um, it's going to be insignificant. Certain movements are unstoppable. They spread virally. I remember when Facebook was just for college students when it first came out, and then before you knew it, your parents were on there, and then some of their parents were on there. But pretty recently, I noticed our Facebook updates for youth group, they're not really getting noticed anymore. It's really interesting. It's not really an effective way to communicate. It's not, the next generation coming up is really not into it. 
I remember when that movie, The Social Network, came out a few years ago. In that movie, the fictional version of the founder of Facebook, he said something. They're debating on whether they should let advertising be on Facebook at all, if you can imagine that. And he says something to his friend. He says, we don't even know what it is yet. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it can be. We don't know what it will be. We know that it is cool, and that is a priceless asset I'm not giving up. Well, it was cool. Now, the idea that Facebook is lame is out there, and it's spreading virally. And this speaks to people's beliefs. It speaks to how beliefs shape our allegiances, and they shape our decisions and our habits and our lifestyles. Our lives are determined by our allegiances. Now, imagine if the all-powerful Spirit of God was spreading unstoppably and changing people's allegiances, their very hearts. We're going to see this morning, you'll see and hear, that God does spread his gospel, and he uses it to transform us and tear down our allegiances to the things we worship. This story in Acts about the same gospel we preach today, the same God working, it's the same God we worship, He's doing the same work in us and in our community. I've divided the sermon into three parts. First, the cause of the riot, as the gospel replaces allegiances. Second, we'll see the clamor of the riot, as the gospel riles up adversaries. And third, the calming of the riot, as God relentlessly advances the gospel. First, the cause of the riot, as the gospel replaces allegiances. Like I explained, Paul's in Ephesus. He's on a missionary journey. He's on his third big missionary journey. These aren't like short-term mission trips. These are where Paul picks a place, he goes there, he works in the community so he can stay and live there, and he persuades people to follow Jesus until a church is established in that place. Then he moves on, and the whole cycle continues over and over again. We're in about the mid-50s A.D. It's about 20 years after Christ ascended into heaven. Paul's in Asia Minor. He's in Ephesus, which back then was right on the Mediterranean coast. He's been persuading Ephesians to follow Jesus for more than two years. And this is obviously having an impact on the religious landscape. We know that. People are forsaking the worship of a false deity. In this case, Artemis. Artemis was a goddess from antiquity. She was associated with wild animals. So she was the patron of hunting. But in Ephesus, she's taken on another attribute, this attribute of mother goddess, which is one of the oldest forms of pagan worship, this idol of bounty and prosperity and fertility. So the temple at Ephesus was devoted to Artemis, and if you don't know, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So enter, against that backdrop, enter Demetrius, who gets his living from making silver shrines to this goddess. And he's really smart. He's like a stock forecaster, right? He gathers the tradesmen, and he predicts that because Paul's gospel is having this effect on everyone's religious practices, then we're going to see an economic impact. People don't need to buy shrines and idols anymore. So he doesn't appeal straight to their greed. He kind of shrouds it in three things. If you read in verse 26... Sorry, verse 27. There's danger that not only, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
So the respective trades are in danger of disrespect. The temple's renown could be dispelled. And even Artemis herself could just cease to be revered. The gospel changes people. It changes our allegiances. It makes us renounce our idols. So what does this have to say to us as Americans living here in 2014? We don't buy idols, right? Well, sure we do. Because an idol is anything we give more importance than God. And we serve it and we lavish our attention on it. We buy little plastic and aluminum idols with circuit boards and touch screens. We bow to the altar of prosperity. We seek it out from people, and from, from sources that are not named Artemis. We look for acceptance. Just think about how much you value the opinion of others. Do you worry about what others think of you more than you value being loved by God? Are you slave to the opinion of your boss? How about bowing down to the opinion of your spouse? Just ask yourself what you cling to. What do you worship? What do you work to be able to afford? As Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We just spend ourselves to get to our idols. We work to be able to live in the houses and the towns we idolize. And we attach importance to what they say about us. These allegiances have to be torn down and replaced. We need to be given God-centered hearts so as to not be slaves to these things. I don't want to be all negative, though. I think God is changing us here at Grace. We want to see Long Island awaken to the glory of Jesus Christ, and he is doing that. It turns out the gospel really does change our priorities, and I want to give you a concrete example. Many of you are involved in our building campaign, and you could stand up and tell how Christ has changed your life, And how you've caught the vision for having our church be a permanent presence here for God to work in the East End. And you're going beyond what you normally give for the work of the church so you can give regularly regularly toward our purchase of this building. And I share that because I heard some really encouraging news about about the amount we've raised so far in our local pledges. And I'm not going to share figures, but suffice it to say that if you went to a ton of churches across the nation told them the size of our church and what we've raised toward the purchase of our building it's astounding so we're surpassing what would be typical for a church our size that speaks to where our allegiances are how god's changing us mark would probably want me to remind you that we have a long way to go (laughs) before the bill comes due so please pray and If you're not involved, seek out how you can get involved because it's a $3 million purchase after all. But I was really encouraged by that, talking to Adriana. We want to see more people change by this gospel. What would happen, envision this, if even 5% of people here, they follow Jesus in caring for the poor. All of a sudden they slash their restaurant outings by half so they can have something to give to the needy. That's an economic impact brought on by the gospel. That would be brought on by the Holy Spirit's transforming power and tearing down our allegiances. But back to Demetrius. The clamor of the riot. So the tradesmen flip out. Demetrius has got them all stirred up. They start yelling, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And they get the whole city in an uproar. They drag two of Paul's companions out to this huge amphitheater where these town meetings were held. And Paul wanted to go there as well. We're going to get, that, get there in a moment. But first, read with me in verse 32. 
Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This makes me think of a scene uh, in, a, in the movie Men in Black. If you've seen Men in Black, Tommy Lee Jones' character has just explained to Will Smith's character that New York City and the whole world are really populated by aliens in disguise, living amongst humans, which I think is totally feasible. And so Will Smith's, Will Smith's character says, well, why the big secret? If people are smart, they can handle it. And Agent K says, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. You get a crowd of people together, and they do things that they would never do on their own. So this mob comes together. They don't even know why. Most of them don't know why they're there. I want to go back to verses 30 and 31, where Paul wants to go here. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So the disciples that are with Paul, they know him. They know he's going to open his mouth. He probably wants to get up and make a big speech, as he's been known to do. He wants to reason with people. But why put more people in danger so the disciples don't let him go? So Paul kind of is in the background of this story from here on. So And then besides the disciples, there are these people that Luke calls Asiarchs, and they get word to Paul not to go either. And who, who are these people, Asiarchs? They are important citizens of the region. They're friends of Paul. So I thought this was interesting, and we should take a moment to think about this. Paul is a Christian missionary who's friends with important leaders in this part of the world. They may not even be Christians themselves. It's really interesting in light of lots of approaches that Christians take today to share their faith. Evidently, Paul was able to share his faith winsomely and even to make friends in the process. So he's not some wacko on the fringes of society. If you know Paul, though, you know he used to alienate people, to say the least. He, at one point, his idol, his primary goal, was to advance Judaism and kill Christianity and kill Christians. But the gospel of Christ overcame his pride his allegiances to the idols of his pedigree and his religiosity. Has it done the same for you? Or do you use Christianity as a way to view yourself as somehow better than those around you? To express your own goodness and your own self-sufficiency instead of relying on Christ's merits for your ability to stand before God. Paul's able to not be like that. He's winsome. He makes friends with people. As the Spirit of God moves the gospel forward, it creates enough conflict on its own. We don't have to add an adversarial or contentious spirit to the mix. Another idol some Christians have doesn't even seem like an idol. They, they idolize simply being known as a Christian. They don't even have a view toward, toward God changing people around them. They just want to be known as a righteous person. And they love being countercultural for its own sake. They're following rules that aren't even in the Bible. That they're like Paul in that before he turned to Christ, just a slave to religiosity. These are the kinds of people, they go out to the Olive Garden and they turn down the server's offer of wine really arrogantly. They're like, oh, we don't drink. I've seen that. I used to work at Olive Garden. The, well, <laughs> the server's not impressed. She just knows there's a skimpy tip coming, right? <laughs> 
Here's an example from my life. For some reason, last week, uh, one of my pictures on Facebook was getting some attention. Someone had noticed it and commented on it. It was way back in uh, mid-90s, I guess. Uh, in this picture, I'm wearing this terrible tie. Really awful. It looks like one of these old-world maps on the tie. And it says, this world is not my home. Just really... Uh, and this activity was at a church with... All Christians anyway, like, what was I trying to accomplish? Look how Christian-y I am. I don't know. When Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, I don't think that's what he meant. But back then, that's what I thought. I don't bring that up to say wearing clothing with biblical references is wrong. Because I was combing through archives, I saw Mark with a pretty bad t-shirt. That <laughs> it was like the Reese's logo. But it said Jesus. But anyway. <laughs> Sorry. But I do bring it up to say back then my focus was kind of strange. It wasn't, it wasn't on seeing the gospel change people's lives. It was on being separate and making it glaringly obvious in the hopes that someone, maybe you know, a fraction of a percent of someone would come up and ask me about it. I don't know anyone that ever came to Christ because of a t-shirt, ever. So let's follow the example that God has given us in Jesus and in Paul by loving people, welcoming them, meeting them where they're at, being all things to all people. I'm thankful to say I don't really see that adversarial spirit here at Grace. For some of you, that's completely alien, and I'm glad to be in a church like that. I don't see us focusing on externals. Let us always remember that the war the gospel wages is on the battleground of the heart for people's very souls. And if you're a Christian here, there is a call on your life to spread the gospel, to spread the message of Christ. But take a cue from Paul and do it winsomely. So, the crowd is gathered. Who really knows what they were planning to do? They don't know. Then the Jews put forth this man named Alexander to make a defense. A defense about what? Probably his plan is to somehow convince the crowd that, well, we in the Jewish community are not affiliated with Paul and his people. So they motion for him to talk. They realize he's a Jew. They shout him down. They shout him down for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, if you can imagine that, for two hours. That's the intensity of their passion. And for the craftsmen, that's the intensity of their greed. Finally, the town clerk gets up there. And he takes control of the situation. He calms the riot. So God uses this town clerk, who's probably not even a believer himself. He tells them that there's no reason for them to be gathered. If you read with me, he says in verse 35, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? In other words, everyone knows Ephesus has the Temple of Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky. In the ancient world, there were numerous items that claimed, people claimed that they had divine origin. They fell from the sky. Verse 36. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. 
So he's pointing out they have legal avenues they can take. We don't need to form a mob and do, do something rash. So Luke includes this, and a big part of the reason he's including this story, in this volume of the Acts of the Apostles, he's making an apologetic case for Christianity to his friend Theophilus to say Christianity is spreading, but it's not disrupting the empire. It's not, there's no reason for us to somehow have a problem with Christianity moving amongst the Roman Empire. It's an apologetic means for, for Luke to tell his friend Theophilus. So there is no charge, but I want you to see, this is really interesting. There's a difference between what Demetrius has said and what this town clerk says. He says, these men are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If you remember, Demetrius said, Paul teaches that God's made with hands are not gods. But this town clerk says the men aren't reviling the goddess. So it seems like a contradiction. It seems like two different things. Perhaps it's due to the fact that, like we said, Paul is not needlessly adversarial when he's sharing his faith. So Paul and these disciples here in Ephesus, they have kind of two paradoxical reputations in the community. Yes, they preach the truth of the gospel, but evidently they don't go out of their way to fight with people about their religion that they're already following. They're sharing the gospel. It seems like we don't have to force the gospel into confrontation, like I said, with people's beliefs. We confront them and we persuade them, but God does the work of making their belief grow. And eventually, when they believe... Their love for Jesus supersedes the worldview they had before. It displaces it. So the, this clerk points out that Demetrius and the craftsmen, if they have a problem, there's legal avenues. We haven't reached any kind of point here in this culture where there might be a stage demonstration out on the East End, probably, against us, against Christians. Maybe it'll come to that someday. I don't know. But I think that if that ever happened, we'd have parents from Second Saturdays Out. We'd have people in the different charities we've helped around here. I think they'd come to our defense. I think they'd say, no, Grace Church is, is good for being here, and they're helping our community. And yes, they preach Christ, but hey, they're a church. You know, I don't think they'd really have any charges to bring. So what would these men in Ephesus have even done? I don't know what their point was exactly. Would they have forced people to buy their idols? There was no, there'd be no turning people back. You can't say, hey, Facebook's still popular. Get on Facebook, it's still popular. If it, if it ever turns to where no one's using it, you're not going to be able to stop that movement. And they're not going to be able to stop this movement. Christianity changes our hearts and so our decisions and then our habits and our whole lifestyles. So the only way they would really stop this would be to stop the gospel spread. But they would have to stop Paul and his followers. And they'd have to contend against the Spirit of God, which can't be stopped. God is going to spread his gospel relentlessly. I want to close with this. I've been watching a lot of The Good Wife lately. Thanks, Adriana, for telling me about that show. Um, there's a character on that show, his name's Eli Gold, and he averts political crises. But when he needs to, he makes crises for his candidate's opponents. So I was just thinking on a tangent that 
Demetrius really went the wrong way. He went about this the wrong way. He's trying to stir up tradesmen to go against Paul and incite a riot. What he needed to do was destroy Paul himself, destroy the credibility amongst the people that Paul was reaching with the gospel. He needed dirt on Paul. But that strategy would have failed. Why? Because the dirt on Paul wasn't a secret. If you can read back in early Acts about the dirt on Paul, it's given to us in the first section, and Paul, Paul has prior opposition to the gospel. If anything, you could point to him and say, look, look, he didn't even believe this. But that is just a testimony to the Spirit's power in the gospel. And, and some unbelievers hate that aspect of grace. They hate it. That the dirt in your life only magnifies your very need of the gospel in the first place. That all the idols you used to worship and the idols you sometimes still fail to forsake, they just point to the need for the forgiveness you already have. So every true accusation that you're a hypocrite serves only to highlight why you need Jesus in the first place. So I ask you, has the gospel cast down your idols? Has it replaced your allegiance to everything other than Christ? If not, come to him. An idol takes and takes and takes. You give and give and give and it gives you nothing in return. In the end, it'll take your very life from you if you're not saved from it. Christ, on the other hand, he'll be an inexhaustible treasure to you. You'll find in him joy. You'll find in him forgiveness. You'll find in him riches forevermore. He's not an idol. He's not worthless. In the end, those who worship idols are going to lose their souls. And I urge you not to do that. If you're following Christ, I ask you, is he the single desire of your heart? Or have you let things creep in that are idols? We're still living this story. Acts was the beginning, and it's just documenting how God is spreading his gospel relentlessly. And Jesus calls you to follow him as it does. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story given to us. That I pray that we would take what we can from it to learn and that we would take it to heart that you are our one true, worthy of worship God. I pray that you just bless the rest of the service in Jesus' name. Amen.